Before we get into the specifics of, of what we're going to talk about this morning, I'm going to ask John Looney if he'd come join me. Um, before we, we, we really jump into what is going to be a next the three-week series that we're in about who we are uh, and who we're becoming as a church, um, this last week, uh, John uh, had a dream that the Lord gave him that, that as he, in fact, it was early in the morning, I was checking my email, and John had been up that night, and he had emailed me what this dream was that the Lord had really spoken to him. And, and, and as I read it, I, I realized that that's not just something for a few people, that, that's something for all of us. It really relates, and I, you'll, when you hear it, you'll understand, to our church, and it really resonated with some things that link over the last couple weeks that I've been processing through and talking through with leaders and with Kim, and, and, and it really reveals something, I think, that's been going on underneath the surface in our church that we need to be aware of, and that's why I really think it's something that the Lord wants all of us to hear. So I asked John if he would share that with us this morning. Yeah, you know, let me preface it just for a minute, because... Um, I have a lot of vivid dreams, uh, a, a lot, and I get to wake up in the morning and try to remember all the details and share my crazy dreams with Denise, and we laugh about it, but it's not very often. In fact, it's been years since I have felt that the Lord gave me a specific dream as a message, as a prophetic message, uh, either to um, to me or to our church, and and so um, this was a unique and dynamic experience that I had this week. And I woke up and I, I knew that this was from the Lord. And so I didn't want to lose any of the details, so I wrote it down. I'm going to read you uh, what I wrote. Uh, as I slept, I began feeling something slowly wrap around each of my legs and arms. At first, it was comforting, but it began to tighten its hold and began pulling I quickly realized it was pulling me down, dragging me away. I was under attack. My arms and legs tingled, and it felt real. There was a real physical sensation I felt. I looked up, and I saw a human face, but it was contorted and ugly. In my mind, I began praying in tongues and calling out to the Holy Spirit. As soon as I did, it began to subside. It didn't leave immediately. I had to keep praying. When it was gone, I asked the Lord what it, uh, what it was that this all meant. Here's the meaning that he gave me. There is a spiritual battle for the church. Progress is being made. People's hearts and actions are changing. The kingdom of darkness is beginning to be pressed by the kingdom of light. But Satan will do, any, will do everything he can to hold on tight and drag us back into the areas that have kept us from real kingdom engagement. Satan comes as safety, security, and comfort. But it is an ugly, contorted, demonic imposter to the true comforter, the Holy Spirit. Our choices, priorities, and perspectives are not just about how we feel about mission. They are the territory being fought for in a very real spiritual battle. We must continue to press forward. We must continue to trust God. We must continue to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Amen. So I wanted just to take a couple of minutes to process that before we jump into 2 Corinthians this morning. 
Um, now, some of you, depending on your background, depending on what your, maybe even your church background is, some of you are like, oh yeah, I get that. I know how God speaks through dreams. Others are thinking, what church did I walk into this morning? So if, if you read through scripture, you'll see that many times God uses dreams. God doesn't always use dreams. It doesn't mean that every dream that you have is something from the Lord. It might be what you ate before you went to bed, okay? But there are distinct times. I've had that happen one time in my life where I know the Lord was speaking through a dream. And I'm, I'm convinced when I read what, what John had recorded, what, what happened in his dream and what the Lord had said to him, I thought, that's for a church. I really believe that's the Lord. Um, but, but when you and I are, 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 are confronted with something like this, what, what John was, con- was communicating was very important, is that there's something going on in us that apart from the, the Holy Spirit revealing it to us through a dream like this, we would just go on as though everything's fine. But, but as, you, as you start to think about this, this is the way the enemy always works. He doesn't work in the light. He doesn't work in the obvious. He works in deception, and he works behind the scenes. And he works so that you and I don't know he's working. He doesn't want to say, hey, ta-da, I'm working on you today, because then we know. And then the, the battle was really over because we can identify that. But when you and I hear something about what the Holy Spirit may be saying to us, you and I have a responsibility. And there are really only two avenues of response to what we just heard. And that is, either I say, yes, that, that I, I can, I'm convinced that's from the Lord. He's speaking to us as a church. He's speaking to me individually. Or, no, I don't think that that's what the Lord is saying to me. That's the only two responses. So if it's not from the Lord, you reject it. If it is from the Lord, you have to accept it, and then you become responsible for it. It's kind of like when, when Jesus, you know, the Pharisees are always trying to find ways to, to trip Jesus up and, and to, to somehow expose him as though he would needed to be exposed like he was deceiving them. And if you remember a dialogue that Jesus had with them, they, they were questioning him, and then Jesus came back to them with a question, and he said, John's baptism, is it from God or is it from man? And if you remember the story, they, they had this dialogue, and, and the dialogue kind of went like this. They said, okay, wait a second. Now, if we say it's from God, then then Jesus is going to ask, people are going to ask them, why didn't you embrace John? Why didn't you embrace his baptism? But if we say it's from man, then all the people who really thought that John was from God, they're going to get mad at us. So really, we're in a, we can't win here. We're, we're in a lose-lose situation. So what did they end up doing? They ended up doing nothing. They settled for middle ground. They settled for indifference. And the reason I want to highlight that is because when John shared this with me, and I was reading through it, and I processed through it, it really, it really seemed to indicate something, I think, that the Lord was, it was conspiracy. The Holy Spirit speaks, he speaks to multiple people, and I really felt like this is something that was true in our church. As we are moving forward, and if you've been here for six months or the last couple of years, we have gone through dramatic transition in our church. There's no hiding that. For a number of different reasons that, that God has been unfolding for our future, things that have happened to us as a church, as a, as a community, and, and as we've moved forward and navigated that, that reality, that, that I've watched kind of what's unfolded in our church family. And that what's happened is unknowingly we've, we've kind of separated ourselves into two camps. It's not that we're fighting with each other or battling with each other, but I've realized that we've kind of settled into two mentalities or two responses to what God is doing in our church. There's a group of people that when we move forward and we're being pushed, like even if you were here last week, if you weren't, you need to go on, on the website and listen to Brad Briscoe's message on a missionary God. It was very powerful, very, very specific for, I think, where our church is at. Is this, there's this response. When we're hearing what the Holy Spirit's saying, we're, we're listening to the teachings of Jesus, there's a group of us that are just, is doing this. We're leaning in. 
We're listening. Our posture is leaning forward. And so we're saying, okay, God, what are you saying? How am I supposed to engage this? How am I supposed to live this out? And so what's happening is there's the light is coming on in different lives and different experiences. And we're seeing God at work and around us. And we're engaging. We're stepping out of our safety, security, and comfort. And then I've also seen, and again, I'm not, I'm not pointing at anyone specifically, but I've also seen a mentality that pervades some of us, and that is when we, we are pushed a little bit, we don't, we don't do this. We do this. And we lean back. And that response, there's two things underneath the surface. One of them may be like, ah, sounds all right, but it's not for me. I'll just let the church keep doing its thing and everybody kind of go, yeah, you go do your laundry love, you go to the dream center, you go serve and you go, you know, you know, be a missionary in your community. But I'm just going to come and do what I've always done because it leads to the second one, which is I'm not buying it. Because let me just be honest with you. I mean, some of you people almost have said this to me, not, not many, but I'm the sixth pastor of Sunrise New Hope. And some people who've been here a long time will say, in their minds, not necessarily to my face. Pastor Stan had his thing. Pastor Dan had his things. Pastor James had his things. And now Pastor John has his thing. And when he's gone, the next pastor will have his thing. And I'll just outweigh them all. And I'll just keep coming because I like the relationships. This is my church, and I'm going to kind of be here until whatever happens, happens. Now, again, I'm not saying that's any one person. But this is what I want you to understand. If all that I, as the pastor of our church in the last two years, if all I've done is convince you that I have an agenda that we're trying to fulfill, then I have failed miserably because it won't accomplish anything. But if what I believe, what we've tried to accomplish as a church in the last two years is to get on Jesus' agenda for the world that goes way beyond any agenda that I could have or that we could have together, that is eternal and that supersedes any church or pastor stint in a church, that if we're on God's agenda, it doesn't matter who the leader of the church is. Does that make sense? So the response is, please, I want you to hear me. Your response and our responsibility is not to respond to what a perceived agenda of a pastor is. Our responsibility is to respond to what Jesus is saying. That's the most important thing. And that's the question, especially this next three weeks. And as we've come through January, we're preparing. And now I know as we're, we're always in a constant state of transition with what's been happening in the church. But now these next three weeks, we're talking about no accident that John's dream came this week. We're talking about the next three weeks, who we are as a church. And what you're going to hear is nothing new because it's what we've done in the line for the last four, six to six months. But just defining clearly who we are. And then the question comes to each one of us, am I going to lean in? to what God is doing, or I'm going to sit back and I'm going to be indifferent. The danger of indifference is you can never truly be indifferent because indifference comes as a mask for rebellion. That's what it does. I'm either in or I'm out. Even Jesus said it. He would rather have you in or out than being what? Lukewarm. Because lukewarm tries to present that you're hot, but you're cold. God would have said, you know what? I'm cold. At least I can respect your honesty. But why not lean into what God is doing? There is a, a divine conspiracy happening in our church. God is working in people's lives. And he's wanting all of us to lean into what he's doing. So this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you're thinking, man, I, didn't, I was just coming here because I was going to come here before the Super Bowl today. And I was going to get all that. So this morning, I want to talk about the first element of what's emerging scripturally for us of who we are as a church. Identity is extremely important in, in understanding who we are. 
whether you know it or not, as an individual and as a church family, this is true too, but really as an individual, you and I make decisions every single day based on who we think we are or who we are trying to become. Almost every decision we make is based on some kind of either identity crisis or understanding of who we truly are. And the same thing is true for a church. The overriding gospel, the mission of God in the world is always consistent throughout the body of Christ. But each individual church may have a unique identity. But as we've gleaned from the teachings of Jesus and from Scripture, what's emerging is what we're supposed to be. And so this morning I want to talk about that, but understanding the importance of our identity is really very very important. It's not a style or a flavor. It's a unique identity that God may give to each individual church or an individual person. But you and I have to understand that as we move forward, as we navigate what God is saying to us, it always has to come through who he has called us to be. We don't want to make decisions as a church family in the future based on trying to become something that we're not. It's like when, you know, when David got to the front line of the battle and Saul saw David and said, okay, at least you're, you're stupid enough to go out and fight Goliath. At least I should give you my armor so that you at least look like a soldier. And you remember the conversation? David puts on the armor and he says, I can't do this. This is not me. And what did David do when he engaged Goliath? He didn't go out as a soldier. He went out as a, as a shepherd. That's who he was. And he wasn't afraid of that. That's who God created him to be in that moment. So how did he defeat Goliath? Because he became a a soldier overnight? No, because he was who he was. That's true for us. If we we try to become something we're not or try to pretend we're something that we're not, it always ends up not being good for us. We're not trying to replicate uh, this church or that church or that style. We're trying to be by integrity. What is God calling us to be? I discovered at a really young age, I'm not a baseball player. And from the moment I learned that, I never pretended to be a baseball player. I wanted to be one really bad. When I was young, I remember my friends all played baseball. And I remember uh, during the week, they would all wear their hats. And sometimes they would wear their jerseys to school. And I thought, oh, I would love to do that. It really wasn't about the game. It was about the notoriety. So when I'm thinking, oh, I I can play baseball. You know, I play pickup games in the street with my friends. And so I went and I played one year of baseball, youth baseball. And I can t- still tell you to this day, I bought it bad at 175. I had three hits, and I can't tell you how many strikeouts. I was horrible, terrible. I was afraid when I went up to bat, I was afraid I was going to get hit. So I would strike out all the time. In fact, I'm probably the only kid in youth baseball, in the history of youth baseball, that was literally knocked out cold by a ground ball to the outfield. <laughs> I'm not kidding. A guy hit a line drive right between the, the shortstop and the third baseman. And it, and it took a weird hop in front of me and it hit me right in the eye. And I'm not kidding. The next thing I know, I'm looking up and I see this guy, my mom, my coach, and three of my players all set, looking at me like, are you okay? And I'm like, what happened? They're like, you got knocked out. I'm like, no, I didn't. I was making a play on the ball. Like, no, you got knocked out. After that, I figured out, you know what? I'm not a baseball player. Didn't pretend to be after that. But I knew I was a basketball player because when I played basketball, it was something that came naturally to me. The same thing is true for you and I when it comes to identity. We have to make decisions based on who God says we are. And that's why it's important for us to define clearly who we are as a community of people choosing to follow Jesus, the church, his church. So if you have your Bibles, let me read uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, as we talk about the first element of who we are, which is this concept called reconciliation which may be a big term, and you're thinking, what does that mean? Let's, let's walk through that together. So Paul says in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. 
All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me give you the bigger picture first. And if this is nothing new, but just to understand the bigger picture. The whole narrative of human history, from when Adam and Eve fell into present day, is a process called reconciliation. And there, we'll read a verse in, in a little bit that talks about this. But all of what, we're, what God is about in the world is through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, is, through this, is going through this process called reconciliation, is bringing everyone, everyone has an opportunity, including all of creation, to be brought back, to be made right with God, to be back in relationship with him. That's why we're still here. That's why God still works in the world. It's the process of reconciliation. That's why this is such a big piece of who we are, that we're in the middle of this story that God is unfolding in human history, that he's in the process of reconciling everything back to him. And so for you and I to understand that, that the term reconciliation is an accounting term. It was used when coins were exchanged. It was, it was, it's used in, in terms of when, when there is an account that is out of balance, where there is an account where there is a heavy debt that is owed and can't be, there's, a, there's a, a, a rightness and a wrongness to it. There's a wrong side and a right side, and it has to be made equal. It has to be reconciled. It has to be made right. So when Paul uses the word reconciliation, what's the, the problem is, is that apart from Jesus, God is here and we are here. We are unreconciled. But to make up for the debt that we have, Jesus took our sin on him to make us right with God. That's the process of reconciliation. That's what God is in the process of doing. And in its simplest terms, the simplest understanding of what reconciliation is, it's making what is wrong right. It is where things are as they are supposed to be. That's reconciliation. When something is reconciled, it is the way that it's supposed to be. So if this is true, then you and I have to understand some things about, first of all, what does reconciliation look like in our lives? If that's what God is in the process of doing, is making what is wrong right, we've caused the wrong, he wants to make it right. If he's in the process of making things as they are supposed to be, then what does that mean for us personally? Paul writes about this. Let me just highlight three things. Reconciliation looks like this. The first thing is verse 17. It means that we are new in Christ. Now, that, some of you who have been in the church are thinking, yeah, I get that. We're new. In fact, I've read this before. Paul says, if you're in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. And so there's this new concept that you and I are to live out. Now, wouldn't you love it if just in one moment when you gave your life to Christ, that he pushed the special, uh, you know, annihilation of sin button, and every issue you ever had in your life just disappeared in a moment, and you never, ever had to deal with it again? How many wish that was true? How many know that's not necessarily true? Because there is a point, but then there's a process that follows the point. It's a process of becoming new. There is newness that comes to us. The new has come, but the new is continuing to come as it pushes out the old and we become the new creation. 
But that means reconciliation means that there's an old way that I used to live that God is now replacing and, and not just remodeling, but literally replacing with my mind and my heart and my actions and everything about me, that there's something about me that is supposed to be brand new and becoming new every single day. That there is changes. There's a new way of thinking. There's a new understanding of who God is. There's a new understanding of my sin and my brokenness. Everything is made brand new. That's the process of reconciliation. There's the old and then there's the new. And I think for some of us, we have yet to really come to that place in our life where if you can just imagine for a moment, what is it like to really be new? What is it to really, again, it's not that everything is perfect, but you have a new understanding of your life, a new understanding of who God is, a new transformation that some things are coming from the inside of you that you know you could not manufacture that on your own. That is God's Spirit transforming you and making you new. Some of us have come to church for years and we've never even experienced that. We're just doing our duty. We're doing the thing we're supposed to do. But there isn't that newness that comes. There isn't that comparative kind of, okay, I really see the way I used to think, the way I used to act, and now I am I'm completely different. There isn't that change. It's, it's more like a, it's just been kind of a slight modification. It's, it's just think, think about what it's like to have something that's old and doesn't work the way it's supposed to, and then it be replaced with something that's absolutely brand new. The difference between the two is night and day. And that's the life that Paul's describing for you and I. There should be a night and day comparison. That's the picture of reconciliation. It was wrong, and now it's right. A number of years ago, we bought a 2006 RAV4. Um, and, and when we first bought it, we test drove it, and we looked at it, and it, the, the, the car looked great. Everything was great. And we, you know, we thought we were, we were getting a good deal. And at the time, you know, Kim, Kim had always had this mentality, and, and I'm, she's kind of winning me over. She said, we really need to buy the extended warranty. I'm like, ah, oh, man, extended warranties are for suckers, you know? It's all the extra stuff they throw on. She goes, no, I really think we should just, just to cover in case anything goes wrong with the car. And it's like, you know, sometimes the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of your wife are like one and the same, just guys, so you know that. Not always, but sometimes. So I said, okay, so we, we put out the extra money for it, and sure enough, three months after we got it, things started to go wrong with it. And so one thing after another, we realized that the back seal on the back door, which was supposed to be the factory door, which we found out later wasn't, wasn't sealed properly, and it rains just a little bit in Oregon. We had water flowing into our car constantly, and then on top of that, things like the, the, the main tailpipe underneath it connected, you know, the, the, well, basically exhaust manifold was rusting out, and that cost another $800. That was also on warranty. And then before you know it, the cruise control, that was like $1,200. That went out. That was on warranty. And then when you would back up, it would make, the brakes would make a loud squeaking noise, and they couldn't figure it out, and it still, till the day we had to give it up, it still made a squeaking noise. And there's just all these things going wrong with it. And I think in 18 months, I tallied $4,000 worth of repair on a car that was supposed to be in good working order. It was a good thing that I had the warranty. And I hated that car. I couldn't stand it. It drove great. I loved the feel of it and when it would drive, but it just wasn't dependable. And so, long story short, because of the way that the financing was, and we got back into the dealership, we were really overbearing. We ended up having to buy a brand new 12, 000, or 2012 RAV4, which at the time was a good deal. And so this is what happened. So amazing, when you drive a car that's brand new and everything works the way it's supposed to be, how much better it is than a car that's old and nothing works at all. Anybody ever experienced that? It's amazing. All the little squeaks and little bumps and everything that was creeping in into the other car, they weren't there in the brand new car. Everything was brand new. And, and then, then I did, started doing a little research on the car that we just gave up. 
and realized that as I dug deeper beyond the car facts, <clears throat> which doesn't really tell you the whole story, just a little side note, I discovered the car that, that we had, that RAV4 from two, the 2006, had spent 18 months sitting without moving in New York State in the elements. That's not good for a car. Things start rusting out. Things start squeaking. St- bad stuff happens. And so not knowing that we got that, but now driving a car where there isn't that oldness to it. It wasn't just things that got repaired. It was literally brand new from the factory to the dealer to our hands. And when we drove it, it was amazing. When it rained, no water leaked into it. The cruise control actually worked. When I put it in reverse, there was no squeaking. This was beautiful. And when I look at it, I think that's the way that our life is supposed to be. I spent thousands and thousands of dollars to modify something that was old to try to make it new. And no matter how much money we put into it or how great our warranty was, it was never going to be different until it was replaced with what is new. That's what Paul's saying. It is, we are a new creation. The new has come. It's not like the old. It's supposed to be brand new. And when you and I are in the process of reconciliation, when we're surrendering ourselves to Jesus and we're giving our sin over to him and confessing our sin, there has to be some kind of newness to know I'm being reconciled. There's something brand new in me. For some of us today, that's either really confirming or that's really depressing because you feel like you're a remodel. And God never meant for you to be a remodel. He meant for you to be a new creation. Second thing that Paul says about what reconciliation looks like, is that we are forgiven through Christ. He says in verse 19 that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and I love this phrase, not counting people's sins against them. Just think about that for a moment. God loves me so much that he wants me to be in relationship with him, so much so that because of what Jesus did on the cross, he no longer counts my sins against me. He takes my sins and he puts them on Christ's account because Jesus paid for those. Just, why don't we translate it this way? Sometimes it's hard for us to comprehend our sin debt, how big it is, how heavy it is, and how much it influences us. Let's just take that. I don't know anybody's financial situation. Take your debt whether it be small or large. Maybe you have a car payment. Maybe you have a mortgage. Maybe you have a huge credit card debt. Whatever. Take your debt right now and translate for every dollar you owe, translate it into a pound. Okay? And now think about every day of your life, you having to, wherever you go, you have to take that with you. You have to carry the debt. So let's say you have a $500,000 mortgage and you owe 300000 300,000 pounds of debt, now you have to carry with you. Just think about it for a moment. How hard would life be? Someone calls you up and says, hey, you want to come over, come hang over, or hang out with me tonight? And we're like, yeah, you live like three miles away. I'll be there next week. Because the 10 semis that, that I have to haul behind me to get all the weight there, it's going to take a little while for me to get there. I want you and I just to think about that for a moment. If, if I am being reconciled because of what Jesus has done, those 10 semis are no longer held against me. They're gone. And if they're gone, that means I am free. I'm free from debt. 
I'm free from guilt. I'm free from shame. I feel free from condemnation. All the things that keep you and I pulled back from what God wants to do. I'm free from that. Why? Because Jesus doesn't count my sins against me. He's already taken them on himself so that I am truly free. If I'm being reconciled, there should be freedom that comes to me. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that, that my, somehow my issues all just disappear in a moment. But there's something in me that experiences a sense of freedom that when I wake up in the morning, I'm not feeling the weight of my failures from the previous day or the previous week because I'm taking them to Jesus and he's forgiving me and now I'm free to move forward. And with freedom comes joy and peace and a passion to follow Jesus. Why? Because I'm no longer held back. I'm no longer disqualified. I'm actually set free because he's not holding my sins against me. That's what reconciliation looks like in our life is that sin debt, that huge weight is now been removed so we can move forward. And then the third thing that reconciliation looks like is that ultimately we are right with God. Paul says in verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we might be right with God. Things might be right between us and God. And this is a big one because the biggest issue that we deal with is that things are not right between us and God. And sometimes we don't even know they're not right. Anybody ever experienced uh, an unreconciled, broken relationship? You don't have to raise your hand because all of us should raise our hand because we all have. Anybody ever gotten into a disagreement with another human being? We all have. And the debris that comes with that and the unsettledness in our life, and if it gets really difficult and there's pain involved, the avoidance of that person because we don't want to deal with them because they bring pain to our lives or we bring pain to their lives. And if we live in that, we're living in what really is unrightness unrighteousness. And if we live that way with God, it's the same thing. We're not right, but because God chose to take our sin and put it on Jesus, he became sin for us, taking it on him, the weight of our sin. Now we are right with him, which means it is possible for you and I to live a life without fear or shame or guilt before God because of what Jesus did. How many times in our life do you and I have the default when it comes to God that we're not good enough, that we live in shame, that we always feel like we're trying to catch up and trying to make up for things, what would it be like to actually have the freedom in life to know that if I am honest about my sin and my failure, and I surrender and I ask for forgiveness, and I repent and turn from it, that I no longer have to have that debris field in my mind. I don't have to have that living in, I don't have to have the enemy throwing stuff in my face because I know it's already been nailed to the cross. That's what it means to be right with God, to actually have things right. And when things are right, that means they're new and they work the way they're supposed to. It's not, again, it's not a modification. And I, this is one of the things I, I, I know that I grapple with attention in my own life. I'm supposed to be new, but I feel like a remodel. And as we apply this to the church, our church is in the process of being renewed, not remodeled. This is huge. See, sometimes what happens is when something breaks down in our life, you and I, if you're like me in your cheap, you try to fix it yourself. Anybody ever done that? I was riding my bike one time and a car cut me off and I had to brake really hard. And as I slid sideways, my back, my back rim folded. And so I had to limp. I was like probably five miles from my house. So I had to limp my, back, my bike, literally walk it because it wasn't, it wasn't turning all the way back to my house. And I looked at it and thought, I could fix this. And so I took the wheel off, and I was hammering on it, and I was bending it, and I was tweaking it, and then I got the tire back on, and I got it back on the bike, and I went out riding, and I, and I thought, this is good enough. Da-dum, da-dum, 
Everybody had a, been on a bike that has a wheel that's out of balance. And I remember I tried for like a couple of weeks to like, this is fine. I can deal with this. This is okay. And then I finally thought, I can't do this. This is silly. And I remember I went to a bike shop and I said, hey, can you fix this? And the guy at the bike shop was like, are you kidding me? No. He's just laughing at me. He goes, you can't fix that. He goes, you have to replace that. I said, oh, I do? He goes, yeah. He goes, That's, that one can't be fixed. So I was like, okay. So sure enough, I bought a brand new one. Guess what? There wasn't anymore. It actually worked. Why? Because it was right. Because it was new. If you and I understand this process of reconciliation, it's, it's different. It's comprehensive. Listen to what Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians, or, first, or Colossians first, uh, 1, verse 19 and 20. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God is reconciling everything, making everything that is wrong right through Jesus, making everything that isn't as it should be to be as it should be. This is what reconciliation looks like. This is the big picture of what God's doing. This is the individual picture of what he's wanting to do in all of our lives. So this is amazing. God wants to make me brand new. God wants to make me free, and God wants me to be right with him through Jesus. That's great news. But the story doesn't end there. Because Paul has other things to say in this passage. Because God is not just in the process of reconciling you. He's in the process of reconciling the world. So as we move on, look at, there's four things I want to highlight because Paul uses a really awesome phrase, an awesome word to remind us of of our role. We are supposed to be ambassadors of reconciliation in the world. If you in your life said yes to Jesus, whether you know it or not, it was in the really fine print down at the bottom of the contract, not only is he going to save you, is he going to forgive you, is he going to extend you grace and mercy, and someday you'll stand with him and you'll be in with him in heaven forever. But down in the fine print it says, by the way, when you sign on to following me, you are, so now, you are now an ambassador of my reconciliation in the world. You and I don't get a choice in it. That's part of who we are. There's four things I want to highlight of what that means for you and I. Look at verse 17 again. Because being an ambassador of reconciliation means that we see people from God's perspective. Not from our own. We don't use our own lens. We use the lens that God looks to look at people, uses to look at people. Remember, so again, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. So what, what Paul is saying is what God looks at us through Jesus, he sees somebody who's brand new, somebody who's being reconciled, somebody who's right. It's a different perspective to see people the way God sees them. In fact, a verse earlier in verse 16, Paul says something very important about the way people started to perceive Jesus and the difference now that they've come to Christ, how they see even Jesus different. He says in verse 16 of, of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a, from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We used to view view people through our lens and our perspective, but now as God sees us differently, we have to see the world around us differently. We don't look around and see people who irritate us, who hurt us, who frustrate us. We see people who are candidates for God's reconciliation in their life. It's a different understanding. It's a different perspective. See, you and I, when you say yes to Jesus, you and I no longer have the right to somehow categorize people as outside. I'm in, I'm reconciled, I know Jesus, but they irritate me, they get in my way, I don't really have time for them. 
And see, you and I would never say that. We would never intentionally do that. But you know, by the process of our life, so many times what happens is that people no longer become an object of God's reconciliation. They become an irritation that gets in the way of our life. They do. They become a nuisance. They become somebody that gets in the way that I really don't have time for or that does something that I don't like. And we become irritated by the people around us because we've all become so focused in our lives. I think sometimes we don't realize that we do that in our own city. That we get into a rhythm of life where life really is about us and we lose sight of the people around us. And so the people who are around us, they, they irritate us. And, and, and you know, when, when Simi Valley grows and traffic gets a little bit better, which, by the way, we know Simi Valley doesn't have traffic. That's an L.A. thing, right? We have, like, a window of, like, five minutes. Oh, there was traffic. It's over. You missed it. But I know, I've lived in the city for, for two years now, and I know a lot about Simi Valley because living in Ventura County before we moved to Oregon. But I know Simi Valley is based on this concept. I move here to be left alone. I live, move here to live a comfortable life. I want to work and visit L.A., but I don't want to live there. I want to live in a more safe environment, which, by the way, did you hear statistics this week? Last year, lowest crime rate on record in the city of Simi Valley. Isn't that awesome? We live in the safest city in the world. Really? Is that something that's great? No, it's not necessarily great. Unless your main focus in life is to avoid crime, then you hit the jackpot in Simi Valley. But, but when you and I live with that mentality, what ends up happening is that when people get in the way of my lifestyle, they irritate me. They no longer become objects of God's reconciliation. They become people that just get in the way of my freedom, my comfort, my security, my safety. See, that's, crime is for L.A. Traffic's for L.A., but not Simi Valley. That's the way we live our life, and we have to be very careful. You know, there's somebody else in Scripture who might as well have lived in Simi Valley. And he's somebody you know really well, and it's somebody that you and I look at, but we don't think that we're a whole lot like him. But sometimes we're exactly like him. His name's Jonah. If you think about Jonah for a moment, Jonah lived in Simi Valley. Even though he didn't, he did. Because when God got a hold of him and said, hey, you need to go to Nineveh because there are people there that if they don't hear the truth, they are going to face judgment and they need to hear the truth so they can repent and they can be saved. And so you know the story of Jonah. What does he do? Like, oh, no, they don't deserve it. And so he gets on a boat, tries to go the opposite way. And then we know the story. He goes overboard, the whale swallows him, gets spit up, and then he ends up going to Nineveh. And so you'd think, this is just, think about Jonah's in four chapters and all the stuff that Jonah goes through in that short, what's recorded in Scripture. You think by the end of it, and, and the end of chapter four, Jonah's like getting it, like, oh, I finally get the master plan of what you're doing, God. That you care about the Ninevites, and that was my call, and, and, and you used a whale, and you used all these things, and now I get it. Don't you think that he would have gotten it? Jonah never got it. The end of the book shows that Jonah never, ever got it. And the reason we know that is that after he goes into Nineveh, these sinful people, and he tells them to repent, and they begin to repent, it says that he goes outside the city, he finds a little tree that he goes under to get some shade, and then that overnight, that little shade tree or bush dies. And now what is Jonah complaining about? His comfort. He's getting a little too hot because the sun is now beating down on his head because the shade tree is gone. And God begins to have a dialogue. And in verse 10 and 11 of Jonah 4, listen to what God says to him. He says, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. 
And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? What was God saying to Jonah? You care more about your discomfort and being a little hot when there are 120,000 people that don't know which way is up. By the way, what's the population of Simi Valley? 125, pretty close. Now, I'm not saying that we don't care about our city, but do people in our city irritate us to the point where they no longer become objects of God's reconciliation, but just irritants and barriers to our lifestyle? We have to be careful of that. Second thing, verse 18, we're ambassadors of reconciliation, also means we have to realize it is our responsibility. So Paul says, and this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave only a few people the ministry of reconciliation. That's not in there. The only a few people part. Some of you like, oh, that's not really there. What translation is he using? It says, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. No, he gave only the called, the gifted, the educated, and people who wanted to do it. No, it's us. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which means if I'm being reconciled by Jesus, it is now my calling and my responsibility and my obligation to be someone who helps others experience that same reconciliation in their life. That's the role that we play. That's, again, it's the fine print. You and I have signed on the dotted line. We are all in. And that means that the only qualification you need to be an ambassador of reconciliation is to be in the process of reconciliation with God yourself. That's it. Because we have been reconciled, now we get the ministry of reconciliation. That's the only qualification that is required scripturally for you to be a reconciler in your community, in our community, to help people find their way back to God through Jesus. That's the only thing. And we got that one because that's a God thing. It's not us. God is in the process of reconciling us back to him. And if you and I would just just for a moment imagine, what would our life look like if that's how we saw ourselves? If you are here last week, you know, Brad Briscoe talked about we are missionaries. All of us are missionaries in our own context. What if we saw ourselves? I am an ambassador of reconciliation. So everywhere I go, everything that I do, every place that I am, that's the role that God has for me. Where I live, in my house, or in my apartment, or the school that I go to, or the job that I work, that's secondary to my primary identity as ambassador of reconciliation. Pretty cool. You got in a title, and you didn't even know you had a title. Ambassador. That's pretty cool. But what if you and I viewed ourselves that way? In our city, that every person that we come in contact with, it's not that you have to force a moment, but you and I have to be ready to see that God is wanting to work out reconciliation in all people, in all things, throughout all time. That's why you and I have to constantly look at the encounters that we have, look at the place where we live. You know, if you've been in the church the last couple years, you've heard a lot about laundry love. We have four laundry loves going through some of our community groups. And some people think, oh, laundry love, I know what that is. That's where you go into laundromats and you pay for people's laundry. That's 5% of it. The whole point is not to pay for someone's laundry. The whole point is to create an environment of hospitality where you actually get to spend about an hour and a half with people and you get to know them. And when you do that, it's amazing, as an ambassador of reconciliation, how as you have conversations with people and you build relationship, you start see- seeing things in their life that are unreconciled and know that you're there for a reason. There's one gal, I won't mention her name, but she's, she's at our, our laundromat, and she shows up every single month faithfully. In fact, she's invited all of her, like her family comes up with her, and every time she shows up, she loves when we walk into the laundromat. She's given, she knows all the people in the community group. She hugs everybody. She's got her, she brings her boys. 
She's, she's a part. It's like she's our friend. But as we've gotten to know her, she's, she's revealed some of her story in life and what she's walked through and, and the brokenness of her past and, and having multiple dads for her kids and going through a custody battle with one of the dad's kids right now. And really difficult time that she's gone through. But I know as each one of us has talked to, I think probably four or five, four or five of us had said the same thing. Hey, I'll be praying for you. I'm praying for you. She, she said, hey, this is the next custody hearing we have. He's not, her, this, my son's dad is not being nice. He's fighting everything. It's difficult. We're at each other. There's tension all the time. And, and so we said, we'll be praying. We'll be praying. And so then we know the next time we came, the court date passed. And we, I said, hey, so what happened? She goes, she goes, it's amazing. She goes, he was fighting everything. And now he's like, we're getting along. She said, you know, we actually worked out custody that really works well for both of us. He's not being a jerk anymore. He's actually acting like he cares. And I said, well, we've been praying. She goes, I can tell you've been praying. What is that? That's reconciliation. That's the process of reconciliation that God is beginning to work out in her life. That as we go to the master reconciler and we pray, God starts to work that out in people's lives. That is repeated over and over and over in every one of our relationships. And that leads to really the final thing this morning, and then the worship team will join us in just just a moment, to understand if we are ambassadors, actually two more things, and we are ambassadors, that, 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 that means that we have to see people differently. We talked about God's perspective. Look at verse 19. This is the third, the third thing. This is what sometimes is difficult for us. If we're going to be ambassadors of reconciliation, we have to embrace compassion instead of judgment. By nature... I'm convinced. Maybe it's just me because I have a really good sin nature that's in overdrive sometimes. Our default is not compassion. It's judgment. Until God works out something deep in us, we don't change. We, our default is to judge other people. But verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to uh, us the, the message of reconciliation. So let's just, just take the progression. God doesn't count my sins against me. Isn't that great news? You can say yes, because it is. Okay, it's kind of an obvious answer. Then why do I hold people's sins against them? If he doesn't hold my sins against me because what Jesus did on the cross, then why do I somehow don't allow that to flow through me and extend that same kind of compassion to other people around me? Why do I get compassion and they get judgment? That's a tension that we live in. If I'm going to be an ambassador of reconciliation, that means I don't have the right to create a perimeter around my life where I say, okay, you get compassion, but you get judgment. But we do that all the time. We have dividing lines. We have circles. We have things that we do in our life where, where the people that are easy to like and easy to love get compassion, but people who are hard to love and have hurt us or done something, we have a difficult time extending that compassion. We will hold them to the letter of the law in their sin, yet God doesn't hold us. Because we've confessed our sin, Jesus has brought forgiveness, and now our sin is on Jesus' account. Just think about that for a moment. What is the perimeter that you have set up in your life where you determine who's in and who's out? Who gets compassion and who gets judgment? A number of years ago, I was at a wedding reception in Oakland. It's downtown Oakland. And the place where the reception was was beautiful. It was an old, restored house, huge house, and it sat on, on a decent piece of property in downtown, in the downtown uh, Oakland area. 
And it was in a public park, but this part was private, and it overlooked this pond, and it was just a beautiful setting. But it was also in downtown Oakland, where when you drove through the area, you could see that the, the, the area wasn't very nice. There was a high population of homeless people who were on the streets. Uh, there was graffiti, all kind of stuff, until you get to this, this beautiful restored house, and you walk in this, this wrought iron gate, and it's like you're in a different world. And so when we got there, I was like, you walk through the house, and then you go up back out on this balcony, and then you go down these stairs, and then you're in like, like this back area that's like a backyard, but it's huge. There's probably about 200, 250 people at this reception. There's this beautiful table set out, and as you walk out the balcony, you hear this, this uh, string quartet playing beautiful classical music, and, and the weather was just right. It was beautiful. But when you looked at the perimeter of the back area, there was a wrought iron fence that went all the way around that as well. And when you looked out, you're looking into a public park. So on one side, you have people, you know, ladies dressed in really nice dresses, guys in suits and tuxedos and beautiful music. And then you look just on the other side of the fence and then there's people sleeping on a bench or leaning up against a tree with their shopping cart next to them just outside that perimeter. And as the reception started, and I remember they were serving hors d'oeuvres, and so you got a little bit of food, and we're walking around, and you walk, we walked up to the perimeter of the fence, and me and some of my, my cousins were there, and, and as we walked up to the fence, we're looking out, there's a, a pond, and there's the park, and you're looking at this, and as we got closer to the fence, I realized about every 10 feet, there was a little sign on the inside of the fence. And the sign said this, it says, please don't share food. And when I first read it, I thought, what does that mean? And then as I thought about it a little bit longer, I realized exactly what it meant. It should have said, don't feed the homeless, because that's exactly what it meant. But it was funny, as we looked at that, my cousins, we were like shocked. Like, really? So almost either out of compassion or out of spite, I don't know which one it was, we went back to the buffet table and loaded up. And as much food as we could cram through those little skinny you know, wrought iron bars, we were feeding anybody who came up to the fence. Because we thought, that, what right do we have to say, oh, because we have money and we're at a wedding reception, we get to eat, but because you're poor and you live in the park, you don't get anything. Now, when we get appalled at that, we think, how dare this business do that? Don't feed the homeless like that. But you and I do the same thing when it comes to compassion and judgment. We let people in and Hey, you eat from the buffet that God's providing for you. You experience compassion, but oh, no, no, those outside, no, you irritate me. I don't like the sin that you're involved in. I don't like how you've treated me. I don't like the way you look or the way you talk or the way you act. So I pass judgment on you. God doesn't do that for you and I. Every human being is a candidate for God's reconciliation. God determines that. We don't. And that, for us, if you and I would live that way, there are people that maybe live in your neighborhood or that you work with or you go to school with right now that God's saying to you, you need to see them differently. You need to change your default from judgment to compassion because they are an object. They are a candidate for my reconciliation in their life. Final thing is this, is that ultimately to be an ambassador of reconciliation means that we live a reconciled life with God. So Paul says in verse 20, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf, or Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why does Paul make such an obvious statement? Because he's saying something so powerful. God is making his appeal to the world through you and I. He is. He has said to you, you are an ambassador 
You have the message of reconciliation. You have the ministry of reconciliation. I am reaching the world through you. Now, if you and I wrote the script of history and we did it our way, you and I would probably write a little different script than what God is writing. And that would be, okay, Jesus, you just kind of part the clouds and you come down and you tell everybody who you really are and they go, oh, of course, I'll follow you now. And you go back to heaven and everybody's great until you return for the second time, right? Jesus, just tell them yourself. If you just came and told them, they would get it. But we aren't God and that's not the way God works. Paul said, listen, God is making his appeal through you. God of the universe has chosen to demonstrate his reconciliation through our lives. That's God's plan. And that's why Paul says, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why? Two reasons. Because God loves you and wants you to be reconciled back to him. But God loves the world and he wants you to be an ambassador of reconciliation. Now, if you and I, as we walk out of here today in, in a few moments, if we were to change our understanding of our life, that I live where I live and I work where I work and I go to school where I go to school, why? Because I'm an ambassador of reconciliation. And understand that reconciliation is comprehensive. We read a passage from Colossians. God is reconciling the world. He is reconciling creation. He is reconciling everything back to him through Jesus. He is making everything that is wrong, right. Everything that isn't as it should be, as it should be. That means everything, even creation, is in the process of being reconciled back to God. Creation is broken. When sin entered the world, not only did we relationally start falling apart, but as you've noticed, the world globally falls apart, right? Things aren't the way they used to be. They're not the perfection that Adam and Eve experienced. That means that you and I have to see that God wants us to be reconciling or be reconcilers of all things. That means our eyes are open. What is not right that needs to be right? What is not the way it should be that needs to be made the way it's supposed to be? You and I are surrounded by that every single day. What if we become those ambassadors in your neighborhood? This is one of the areas. Kim and I, not always successfully, have always tried to influence our neighborhood, to try to be, try to be that, that us being in our neighborhood makes our neighborhood better. It changes our neighborhood. When we were in Newburgh, uh, probably six months after we moved in, next door the house sold and a widow moved in. She lost her husband a few years ago. She's on her own. She's trying to navigate a new season of life without her husband. She's got some kids, but they're always, not always quite there helping her. And so Kim and I made this commitment to reach out to her. So we'd have her over for dinner. She was our, became one of our close friends. But we made a commitment that I was going to keep my eye on her for things that weren't being taken care of that I might be able to take care of for her. So I would watch. Sometimes she would go with her friends. She would go away for a period of time. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if she just didn't have a good gardener, but her gardener would skip one or two weeks. And so I was, as I was mowing my lawn, if her lawn needed mowing, I'd just mow right on over and keep going. I would mow her lawn. There was a tree right on the edge of our property, and it would get overgrown, and she would try to get her, her gardener to come out. He wouldn't come out, and so sometimes I'd just take a ladder out without even asking her, and I would start trimming the tree. And then, then there are other times when I was, in, this is a seasonal thing in Oregon, people use bark dust to cover up a lot of the different things, and so I would be putting brand new bark dust in my yard, and if I had like three yards, I'd order an extra yard or two, and I would do her yard. Every time, trying to make sure. Why? Because I would see things for her that weren't right, and she didn't have the ability on her own to make them right, so I chose to make them right for her. She became one of our best friends in our neighborhood. 
You and I are surrounded by people like that all the time. We just have to open our eyes. But I want you to think this, this and I'll, I'll close with this, but just think about this. Reconciliation isn't about hitting a home run. It's about hitting a single every single day. I know I'm not a baseball player, but I understand enough to know the difference between the two. You and I want to try to hit a home run or we want to try to do nothing. We want to like have the amazing story about, you know, I went and I talked to this person and they got on their face before God and repented and came to Jesus and then the heavens parted and the angels sang, right? That's what we want. You know what reconciliation starts with? It's really simple as walking down your street and picking up trash. What's not right needs to be made right. Pick up trash in your neighborhood. Looking out for your neighbors when a day or two goes by and, and they didn't have time to bring in their trash cans and you go over and you bring their trash cans in for them. That's the process of reconciliation. You, because you live in your neighborhood, your neighborhood should be better. If you were to move out tomorrow, your neighborhood should feel your absence. If we're truly ambassadors of reconciliation, that means it's everything. I'm keeping my eyes open to help people because it's a part of what? Taking what is not right and making it right. Seeing what is not as it's supposed to be and through the power of God, helping it to be what it's supposed to be. Would you close your eyes? We're, we're going to transition to an opportunity to receive communion together. And I just wanted you to focus on a point of personal application, what we're going to do in the next few moments. As we come to, to receive communion in just a moment, when we, the, the worship team is going to, to lead us in, in a song, and during that song at any time, you, you are welcome to, to get up from your seat and to make your way to one of the, the four stations here in the sanctuary, where, where you were, you're going to encounter the opportunity to, to take the bread and the cup, which Jesus talked about so many years ago about when he broke bread and, and drank the cup with his disciples, that he said to do this to remember. Remember me. Remember what I'm going to do for you, what I've done for you. What were you about to, to receive are symbols. They have no significance in and of themselves, but what they point to is very significant. They point to Jesus' blood shed, that's the cup, and his body broken, that's the bread. And those two symbols form to point to you, for you and I, the point where our reconciliation was made possible. It was Jesus' death on the cross and then his subsequent resurrection to demonstrate his power over death. And Jesus did that so that we could be reconciled back to God. So what you and I get to participate in the next few moments is a huge reminder to us that God's love is so profound and so powerful that he has made a way for me, the old person, the broken person, the flawed person, the judgmental person, to be made brand new because the sin that used to be held against me now has been credited to Christ's account. And he has paid that debt for me. What I'm going to ask you to do when you receive those elements is ask God the question, where is it in my life that there are things that are wrong that need to be made right? Where are there things in my life that aren't as they should be that need to be made as they should be? Where are those areas in my life where I am unreconciled? And as you ask, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you where those areas are. And the beauty is, then you confess it right there. And you hand it over to Jesus and he takes it on his account. And now he says, listen, now you can go and live new. You can live different. You are right with God. And no longer are you the old, you are the new. So now live differently than you lived before. Because not only are you being reconciled,
but now you have the experience to be an ambassador of reconciliation to the world. Lord Jesus, would you, in these moments, would you remind us, and far beyond these moments, what our role is, what our identity is as a church family and as individual believers. Lord, we are reconcilers. We are ambassadors on your behalf to impact the world, and the world is our next-door neighbor. It's our co-worker. It's the people in our city as well as the people around this world. So, Lord Jesus, would you work deeply and profoundly in us. Don't allow us to lean back and be indifferent, but give us the courage to lean into what you're doing in us and through us, through the power of your reconciliation in us. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.